A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome, faithful friends and listeners. This is episode 22. Today, we are doing a Bible episode. It's been a while. And due to popular demand, we decided to tackle the book of Job. So we're going to talk about the book of Job today. All right, before we begin, uh, we're going to have a little outline here that we're going to follow. So first, we're going to talk about the book of Job and how it can be viewed or thought of as a mini Bible, okay? Ben, what do we mean by that? Well, the book of Job is interesting because it's mostly a long set of speeches between Job and, and three friends. Uh, there's a little bit more than that, but that's the, that's the bulk of it. And, and so we have an, essentially an extended argument between, between people who have different perspectives and the differences are major. Uh, we'll talk about them in more detail, but but Job and his friends are disagreeing about whether Job is innocent, about whether God is doing the right thing, about whether Job has been treated fairly. And so you can't simply take uh, a sentence or a verse out of the book of Job and, mm. and, and just claim that it's true in a naive way, because within a chapter, you'll have a rebuttal of that very thought. So Job contains arguments and counter arguments, uh, statements and opposing statements. And it's, it's, a, it's a really uh, intense argument about God and about justice and about suffering. And, it, and it, this is something that many of us don't appreciate about the Bible. Uh, oftentimes people are looking for a biblical theology or the biblical perspective on on something in particular. Well, if the book of Job is included in the Bible, then there can't be a biblical view on a particular thing, because even within the book of Job, there's opposing views. And the book of Job just beautifully uh, sets those alongside each other in an argument. And, and we get to read that argument. And then at the end of the book, um, the book reads us in a sense, because, uh, because we are, we lean one way or the other in response we can't take it whole we can't swallow the whole thing whole we have to we have to synthesize it for ourselves and come out changed to some like we have to come out with some sympathy for one side or the other yes so what i hear you're saying is that there are many voices in the book of job not just one there's god there's all the characters and the same thing is true more or less with the rest of the bible we have to be diligent and careful in how we read it. Uh, we can also say, like you said, there are different arguments, there are different theologies, right? Like Job and his friends each view God a little bit differently. They see God working or functioning in the world in different ways. They have, they have different conceptions of the justice of God. And so when we read the Bible, when we read the book of Job, we have to be aware of these um, contrasts that call for us call for us to to decide and to figure out which one do we want to listen to which one do we want to say perhaps no or maybe a qualified yes to uh, 
Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the text itself. I know you have a copy of the Septuagint in English, and you made a discovery along the way, which I did not know of. Tell us about it. Yeah. Well, one thing about the Book of Job is without without speaking beyond what I know, uh, I know that it's one of the older um, one of the older pieces of writing in the in in the scriptures. So if we were to put a chronological Bible together, as some people have attempted to do, it would be kind of near the beginning. Uh, and part of that means that it's come down to us, like the, the, the text that we hold in our hands or, or read on BibleGateway.com has, has probably been through many versions. And, and so we have to account for the fact that sometimes uh, certain sections of it don't really don't really work well with other sections uh, or sometimes one section of it softens something that the other was making clear or obscures something that the other was making clear. So, so it's, it's very likely uh, it's hard to deny that the book of Job has different layers in it. And this means uh, part of it is newer than some of it is old and some of it is new. Um, well, anyway, they, the, uh, the early church in, in the Christian faith, they used a, um, a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, a Greek version of the Old Testament that included a number of different books as well, um, including the Wisdom of Solomon, for instance. And this is called the Septuagint or the LXX. And in that uh, Greek edition of the Old Testament that was uh, on hand for the early church, the book of Job is much shorter than the one that we have in our English Bibles now. So, so there are different versions of the book of Job. Uh, and we need to show, not only do we have to have a little bit of judgment in which voices we listen to in the book of Job, but we also have to think about which sections we're, we're listening to and, and how we treat the different sections, because it's very unlikely that the whole thing fits together just right. Um, part of interpreting it is making choices between which sections we give weight to. Yeah, agreed. Well, I like to say that the Book of Job can be viewed as a mini Bible because I think that a lot of people who have read the Book of Job realize that you have to be careful. You can't just randomly pick a chapter or a verse and say, oh, here it is. The Word of God is saying this. Because, I mean, who knows? Maybe you're quoting one of the people that God rebukes towards the end of the book, right? And so you have to really think clearly about what you're doing and you have to uh, question what it is that you're reading, question the verse, question the chapter in light of the whole, in light of everything that you have available, even just within the book of Job. I think this is a helpful hermeneutic when we're reading the, the whole of the Bible. It's helpful to have this approach that requires care, study, and just really being aware of what it is that we are saying when we just lift a passage of scripture from the Bible. Hmm. Anything else on that? Yeah, well, a, a real easy, a real easy place to apply this is in the New Testament. Uh, not every letter that's that's introduced as written by Paul is necessarily written by Paul. Hmm. You've got yeah. 
mm-hmm. for many, many years now, it's it's been uh, commonplace that there are the undisputed Pauline epistles, talking about Romans, 1 Corinthians, mm-hmm. 2 Corinthians, mm-hmm. uh, and, and a few others. And then there there's other ones that are, that all the evidence points to them being as written as pseudonyms uh, or as a false pseudonym. So written in Paul's name as if it was him. And this is just a form of literature. It seems kind of um, unethical in 2021 to write something like that without making it explicit, but, but it wasn't so much a problem in the time when the, uh, when the, when the biblical writings were being written. So the pastoral epistles, for instance, uh, Titus first and second Timothy, these are a different voice than the Paul of uh, Romans and first and second Corinthians. And so we should just treat it like another voice. doesn't matter that it, it identifies itself as Paul. Mm. Yes. So even if you're the biggest Paul stan, you have to be careful. Which Paul are you quoting? Are you quoting the Paul that just about everyone universally agrees? Oh, yeah, this is definitely Paul. Or are you quoting passages from one of these letters? That you're like, hmm. Is this really Paul? <laughs> is he having a bad day? What happened here? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent application. Absolutely. So already we have identified just two sections and there's more within the Christian Bible, right? Where we have to exercise a lot of judgment and care. Beautiful. All right. Let's talk about what is essentially the main question in the book of Job, the theodicy question. The theodicy question people usually frame as follows. If there's a good God, why does he allow suffering to innocent people or to good people, right? And how could this be? A lot of people read the book and say that this is probably the central question around which the arguments uh, orbit in the text. Uh, what, what do you see as being the case here with regards to theodicy? So theodicy... Uh, etymologically, that word means like justification of God or this task of finding a justification for God. So God doesn't look so great uh, in many in many situations because we're disappointed with what has actually happened. And if we hold God responsible for what happens in the world, as many or even most biblical authors do, uh, we need to account for the less than desirable things that are happening. And And on the face of it, these look bad on God. They look like they count against God's goodness or God's power or something. So theodicy is about finding a justification for God, saying that nevertheless, God is still worthy of worship or good. Now, it, let me, this is, theodicy is something that on the one hand is very dangerous and very difficult and almost certain to fail depending on how you approach it. But on the other hand, we simply cannot stop trying uh, to build theodicy. Uh, it, we, we can't just sort of settle for, I guess God isn't worthy of worship. I guess some of us do settle for that and we move on and we leave the Christian faith actually. But, but if, if we're going to stay, we need to continue to attack the problem of theodicy somehow. Uh, if we're going to have anything to do with God. A God who seems not as good as advertised, uh, given the way things are actually turning out in the world. So let 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 me. One thing I found very helpful, a helpful distinction is is theodicy 
that seeks an explanation versus a theodicy that seeks uh, knowledge or evidence. And so the first approach is to say, what we need to do is we need to find a way to explain to ourselves and others how it could be that God could be good and also that all these bad things can happen to me and others. And so the goal here is to try to find an explanation. And the idea is, is that if I had an explanation, then I would understand. And if I understand, then I could see God as justified, that I could see God as worthy of worship despite this, this other stuff. Well, that is most certainly a dead end. Uh, I, nobody, I think it's safe to say, has succeeded in producing an explanation that leaves all the evil and suffering and disappointment in the world explained in term in a way that that reflects well on god that leaves god looking justified it just can't it just can't be done or at least it hasn't been done do you know of any examples of anyone who succeeded <laughs> with a explanatory theodicy yeah no i do not i mean i've come across lots of explanations but none of them satisfied they all fall short and again this is one of the reasons why a lot of people are embracing universal salvation for instance because universal salvation is not so much an answer to the question oh why is there suffering universal salvation doesn't answer that question universal salvation says well all these things are true but god's gonna heal the creation god's gonna save all creatures and he's gonna make everything bad good because ultimately what we want is not an answer to the question of evil we want evil to be eradicated and we want all the pain of the world to be healed and to be done away with that's what we want and so we need more than some clever theory that clears god's name but leaves us in the same situation we we don't need that we need for all of these problems that we have to be to be solved ultimately i think okay well uh so we're talking about theodicy as explanation and how that's a difficult project so let me give an example from the new testament about a theodicy as explanation so jesus is confronted at some point in the gospels by people who are who point out to him like hey do you remember when this tower fell over and many people died in our neighborhood Mm-hmm. And he said, and and were, and and they asked Jesus, was that because they were sinners, uh, or do you remember when, when the government uh, murdered many of us? Was that because those people were sinners? And, the, or do you remember when this person was born blind? Was that because his parents were sinners? So in the New Testament, we have in the Gospels, we have Jesus is confronted with theodicy as explanation, where people say, oh, that can't be God's fault; it's the fault of the victim because they were sinners. Mm-hmm. And Jesus doesn't take this bait. He doesn't, he's not impressed with this theodicy as explanation. He, he more or less shoots it down and, and redirects the tension towards the relationship of the person who's bringing it up to God and whether they are um, ready to face judgment Mm -hmm. for their own sins. So, so the, yeah, so theodicy as explanation, it, it, it gets, uh, challenged, through the example of how Jesus responds to it in the New Testament, at least. Okay, but we don't need to have an explanation to know that God is good. 
Children don't need to completely understand what their parents do for a living in order to know that their parents are, are good and trustworthy. Uh, so it's a misguided and maybe over-intellectual approach to try to explain the evil in the world. What we need is just to know that God is worthy of worship. And how can we even know that? Well, it's possible to have evidence, and this is why experiential theology is the theme and name of this podcast, it's possible to have evidence that God is good in your own religious experience, in your own moral and interpersonal experience. And this evidence can, can count uh, against all the evidence that God is not good in the world. Uh, we, we have, on the one hand, experiential knowledge of the goodness of God, and we have, on the other hand, the experience of all of our disappointments with God. And, and even though they're pulling in opposite directions, we can still come out in a place where God is justified for us uh, because of our knowledge of the goodness of God. And this has nothing to do with an explanation of the evil in the world. Now, you, what you mentioned in universal salvation is, a, is, is putting some conditions on, on a theodicy where you're saying that assuming that God is justified, this is what must be required for that. And and I think that that's a logic that drives some theology, especially universal universalist theology, is this idea that in order to, for God to be justified, and given that we know that God is justified, say, experientially, then something else must be true. And so it's a movement from experience to, to um, it's a movement from experience that God is justified to building sort of theologies and explanations, but it is in the realm of explanation still. It's, it, goes be, it goes somewhat beyond the evidence, perhaps. Um, anyway, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's always helpful to just look at Jesus, right? In his God-forsaken experience, like according to Mark's gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he seems to die in despair, not triumphing over uh, the people that crucify him, but just really puzzled, confused, discouraged, in defeat, really. And that is his God-forsaken experience, right? And it's, it's important that we remember that Jesus and the cross are at the center of Christian faith, and that sooner or later, these things are more than just intellectual questions. Sooner or later, lots and lots of people experience something, some tragedy or natural disaster or something that will make them question things deeply, where it's not just an intellectual question, but it really becomes uh, a crisis that demands a good answer in order to be able to move forward in a healthy way for their faith, for their mental health, for their very life even. So it's not just an intellectual question. It is, but it's more than that. Sooner or later, for a lot of people. And if we can think about these things, I don't want to say rehearse in advance, but it would be helpful to us to have something to fall back on when the vicissitudes of life come our way. Good. 
Well, maybe we can outline the book of Job here now. Does it sound good? Yeah. Okay, so the book of Job, if you pull it off the shelf, uh, you'll find that it begins with what we call a prologue, um, which is a, about two chapters. And then, it, then we have speeches uh, involving Job and three friends who come to, to mourn with him at first, but then to advise him, essentially. Uh, and then we have a fourth friend who speaks. And then we have the Lord speaking to Job, a dialogue between Job and the Lord. And then last of all, we have an epilogue. Okay, so in the prologue, the way it's described is, is uh, the sort of divine counsel situation where the Lord uh, is sort of holding court and receiving the the angels and in an ancient sense, it's not in the modern sense. And among them is the, is this accuser um, figure who, who more or less makes a wager with the Lord that Job only trusts the Lord because of what the Lord has done for him. Uh, and that Job lives a protected life. And that's why he's so righteous. Um, of course he would obey God. And then, Okay, so I don't want to get into into too much detail, um, but more or less, the first couple chapters, they provide a bit of an explanation for why Job is suffering. They give us a view behind the curtain before the book even starts, like theologically or or from the perspective of this divine council, from the perspective of the unseen forces of God and the other rulers in the world of why Job is suffering. And I just want to say... Then um, when I was writing an essay on this book uh, in seminary, I came across Rene Girard's book Mm -hmm. on Job. Mm. And he says right up front that this, Mm. we should completely ignore the prologue, Mm. that it undercuts the message of the book. And and here's kind of why. He points out that Job doesn't lament for the things that are lost in the first two chapters. In the rest of the book, they're not part of the... They don't, like, we don't need... There's no reference to the first two chapters in the rest of the book mm-hmm. until we get to the epilogue, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the first two chapters, they give us this nice, tidy framework in which things are happening. But the book is much richer without it. And I think this is an example of the redaction starting to happen where the book is so puzzling that in order for it to be transmitted down to the next generation, at some point someone has to make sense of it. And so they put a prologue in there just so that it is not just to take the edge off so that it can be accepted by the, <laughs> by the community that's, that's transmitting it onto their next generation. So, mm. so I, I don't have much to say about the prologue other than I wouldn't put much stock in it as far as weight when I'm interpreting the, the book overall. Any thoughts on the prologue there? I, I echo everything that you said, and I like that you brought out Rene Girard, because I mean, I think one of his contributions, I think, is the fact that he reminds us that the genius of the Hebrew Bible is the fact that it allows the victim to speak. Mm, yes. Like, yeah. like in so much of ancient quasi-historical accounts, it's always the conqueror that talks about, you know, how they conquered and what they did and the other, and no space is given to the victims to to share their side, their experience. And so here, again, the genius of the Hebrew Bible is that we have a victim here speaking at length, venting, complaining, grumbling, accusing God at times, 
And so I think this is tremendously important. Yeah. And okay, so let's go to the speeches and Job with between Job and his three friends. More or less what's happening here is if, if to simplify it, it's it's going something's like this is happening. Um Job is suffering something. Uh, Rene Girard would say he's suffering uh, the disfavor of his three friends. That it's it's he's being scapegoated by his community. But I'll leave Gerard alone for the rest of the podcast here. Um, but anyway, Job is suffering, and and that's the fact. And what's the question is why is he suffering? Well, both Job and his three friends agree on something called well, which I'll call the ancient wisdom, which is taken for granted by Job and his three friends. And we'll get to that in more detail, but more or less, according to the ancient wisdom, Job, if Job is suffering, that's because he has done something wrong. And God is supposed to make it so that only people who do wrong are suffering and the people who do right are prospering. So if Job is suffering, Job is suffering. Okay. And from his three friends perspective, according to the ancient wisdom, that means that Job that God is in the right and Job must be in the wrong. That's why he's suffering. But from Job's perspective, having his moral self-knowledge of knowing that he's not wicked, uh, his, he blames God for allowing him to suffering contrary to what God owes him under the ancient wisdom. So there's mm-hmm. this deep agreement between Job and his friends. They agree on this ancient wisdom. What they don't agree is what it means for Job versus God. The situation plus the ancient wisdom says that either Job is wicked or God is wicked, basically. And Job blames God and his friends blame Job. And that's the, that's the gist of their debate back and forth. Does that sound about right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, then there's a fourth friend who speaks. And I don't have anything to say about that, really. Uh, I'm not really against it or for it, but... I think what's really happening there is the fourth friend is maybe a subsequent voice who's trying to make sense of the books. The fourth friend may be a commentary on the the main speech cycles by someone at another layer of this text. And I think I can leave it at that. I don't really have much else to say about the fourth friend. Well, if I remember correctly, God specifically rebukes the three friends, right? But I don't think he rebukes the fourth figure. So maybe the... I have to right. take a closer look, I guess. I mean, it's perhaps the fourth friend is like the last material added, the newest material in the book, an attempt to to make it work. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I don't, but I don't have anything else to say about that. I mean, I don't, I don't know in detail. But that would make sense. Um, okay, then we get to the Lord's speeches. So finally, Job gets to have his day in court, so to speak, before the before the Lord and. We'll talk about those speeches uh, a little bit later, but they're very significant. And then at the, we get to this epilogue and the epilogue is very disappointing because it essentially undercuts the whole value of the entire book by, by saying, well, guess what? Job got back everything. So he lost his family. He lost his wealth. Well, guess what? Now he's even wealthier with a new family. So never mind that the people who were lost are still dead. And that, that still means something that's completely glossed over in the epilogue as if, as if all is well again. Um, plus like the moral value of this, um, of this text is the idea that of how we can sort of know God in the midst of God forsakenness. 
And it's sort of like the epilogue just takes the edge off completely because in the end he gets it all back anyway. So it was just a big, it was just a big fake out that the epilogue, uh, I think is best ignored as well, honestly. So any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I agree. We, I mean, it's fun. I guess you can read it, but you really want to pay attention to what's going on in the middle. Yeah. So my focus then is, um, yeah, the, the, the speeches between Job and his three friends and then the Lord's speech between to Job as well. That's where I find the value uh, in this book. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's fair to treat those as relatively standalone or as an, at least as an experiment to sort of see what does the, what does that, what was, what does that version of the book say when we focus on those sections? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So should we talk about the themes, even though we've mentioned many of them? Yeah, we should. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about the themes sort of having trimmed the book down to this material. Let's talk about what those, what that part says. So the first, I mentioned the ancient wisdom. So I, I think it's helpful to think of the ancient wisdom as having two parts to it. Okay. The first part is, uh, is the logic of retribution, which is um, the logic of quid pro quo or just desserts. And the idea is that the ancient wisdom, the retribution principle says that if you are righteous, then God will bless you. And if you are wicked, then God will, will, will curse you or harm you. Uh, and so what you do accrues something called desserts or just desserts. And then it's God's job to met out those just desserts. That's the role that God plays in this ancient wisdom. And so if you assume that the world is operating according to retribution and you see Job suffering, the natural assumption is that the explanation for his suffering is that he is wicked. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's exactly what is happening. And that's the, that's, that is a theodicy, is it not? It's the idea that we can explain suffering in the world by blaming the people who suffer for deserving it. That's the theodicy of retribution. Mm. And it's so interesting because even now, I mean, people do this, politicians do this, they blame people. Well, you know, the reason this community is suffering is because this community X, Y, Z. And they leave out many factors, unspoken, unstated. It's an oversimplification. And uh, here we see something similar going going on with Job's friends. They're oversimplifying something that is complex and coming to wrong conclusions. Maybe that's why I, yeah, yeah. I think that the retribution principle and the retribution theodicy that is connected to it is, is pretty close, like pretty close to the original sin of Christian theology. <laughs> that we, it's just in there so deep that, almost no matter what we do, it, it pops back up again. Uh, it's very hard to separate people from their love of retribution. And I think that, 
as I interpret mm-hmm. the, the good news of the Christian faith, the good news is that retribution is false and wrong and not true and that God operates in a different way. So I've, it really breaks my heart when I hear now the Christian gospel being described along the lines of good news. God has held up the retribution principle and worked it out in your favor. somehow. (laughs) But like, it's not good news if retribution theodicy is central to it. I think that the good news destroys uh, retribution theodicy and, mm-hmm. and that's a large portion of the work that it does that the good news does is it and i think so so anyway retribution uh the other half of the ancient wisdom is this might makes right principle and many of us will recoil from that a little bit more naturally we know that power doesn't equal righteousness right do we know that <laughs> you and i do you and I do know that. <laughs> Our listeners also know that because they've listened to 20 episodes already. Yes, they're very well educated by now. So. <laughs> yeah, we, we've saved them thousands of money, thousands yeah. of dollars, Canadian or American, in, in seminary education and, and books. Yeah, and we haven't even put this on Patreon or anything. So this is freely we have received, freely we're giving away. <laughs> With no ads. With no ads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So might makes right. Now, this is part of the ancient wisdom as well. And you'll see that Job believes it and his friends believe it. They they think, okay, I have to choose between God and Job. Clearly, according to the retribution principle mm-hmm. that they all assume is true. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, who should I pick? Um, I'll pick the powerful one. Might makes right. If I, who's right, the powerful one, that's who's mm. right. So God mm. must be right. And that's why the, it's amazing how, how, how much bootlicking Job's friends do to sort of stay in the good books of the God they believe in and how they don't, how God can get away with pretty much anything because might makes right. And they just are steadfastly loyal to God without any, without any sense of what might actually be right um mm-hmm. and yeah, they, well, they have no yeah. yeah let me interrupt here just because i think you're hitting upon something that is so true and a lot of people if they grew up in evangelical churches or a cult or some really fundamentalist religion they'll they'll emotionally relate to what you just said because for a lot of these communities, faith is a matter of unquestioning obedience, right? Unquestioning obedience. So if the text says this, well, that's what the text says. But you don't question God. You don't question the text. You do what God says. Why are you questioning? They cannot conceive of faithful questioning. Questioning that comes from love, from faith, from a deeper desire to connect with God in the world with your neighbor questioning itself is a sign of faithlessness go ahead yeah yep so I mean what else to say about that might makes right and retribution those are the two pieces of the ancient wisdom that are assumed by both Job and his friends and if you read these speeches you'll find cases where Job 
agrees with this and where his friends agree with this on, on both elements. You especially see the Mike makes right concern in the, when Job is um, talking about what would it be like to have a day in court with God? And he talks along the lines. He just assumes that he, even though he's righteous, he mm -hmm. will be declared wicked and that he, mm -hmm. there'll be nothing. He'll have no power to, to mm -hmm. defend himself or to, um, yeah. So the, so, so they're both assuming everybody's assuming this. Uh, okay. So what's the problem then? The problem is, is that Job is actually righteous and also downtrodden. It's, the problem is that, that the weak one is actually right, <laughs> righteous. So might makes right is wrong. Mm. Um, and, and the retribution principle is not being upheld because Job doesn't deserve what's happening to him. Yeah. This is the problem of the book. Okay. Uh, earlier, I wanted to interrupt you, but I didn't. So I'm going to interrupt you now. All right. Uh, yeah, I think this is huge right here. This is huge, okay? The retribution principle, right? I mean, we have a few episodes on, on atonement. Please go back and listen to those. They're brilliant, I have to say. <laughs> uh, but no it's it's so true i mean this idea of you know atonement well god figured out a way to make retribution work he factored jesus into the equation and boom it worked it worked right <laughs> not god destroyed the retribution or god canceled it or annulled it no he made it work jesus came into the equation and god made retribution work and this is the gospel. This is the gospel. We're going to have conferences, organizations, and this is going to be the, the, the test of biblical orthodoxy, this understanding. And it's just so wrong on so many levels, on so many levels. And yes, to some extent, yes, you can kind of make a case for that, but it's, it's very dangerous and it's not easily done. I was reading this book by Richard Rohr, right? Uh, loved by many, hated by many as well. Uh, the universal Christ. And he asked this question just in passing. I mean, he's not really spending a whole lot of time debunking this theory. But he says, who do we see Jesus in the Gospels punishing? Where do we see Jesus punishing people? <laughs> or punishing some people on behalf of others? I mean, where do we see this principle at work with Jesus? Answer, nowhere. And again, it's just something to think about. Uh, I think you're absolutely right when you say that in the Western churches anyways, in the Western churches, this is a huge problem and one that we're still trying to get rid of. We're still trying to get rid of and move past, not just in religion, but even in politics and other areas, economics. Uh, yeah, huge, huge problem. Let me um, let me give a criticism of your your United States of America from over here in Canada, and I mean we're maybe not so much better, but but the U.S. is not looking so great on this front. Um, how is it that Americans tolerate a, a nation with a prison industrial complex run amok? How is that even tolerated? I mean, it could it could come and it could gobble up you, your friends, your children. Your parents because the gospel as it's been preached in the united states 
from the loudest pulpits um, is a gospel of retribution. And everybody is just okay with retribution. Retribution is the assumed wisdom mm-hmm. of, um, of American religion. Mm. And if you haven't gone to church in a long time, at least you still believe in retribution and mm-hmm. vote accordingly. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, I remember back when I used to argue on Facebook, which was many years ago, I assure you, <laughs> getting into an argument with... You, with you, argue, a, you go and argue on Reddit now, right? No, I do not. I don't even <laughs> have an account there. But <laughs> um, just, I was... I was, I, I gently challenged the concept of retribution um, for a English professor or, some, or something at a Christian seminary. And I was blown away by how, how about by his zeal to defend like the death penalty as good and righteous and Christian. And I, and I couldn't help but seeing that, that this man was just in the grips of retribution theology like Mm. the gospel only made sense to him from the perspective of retribution and that applied directly to punishing his neighbors to a sense of what is okay in our in our society regarding punishment and uh and i i don't think that we're going to see a a large change in how in, in how prisons work in the United States until this retribution theology is, is shaken. Mm-hmm. And I don't see it being shaken anytime soon either. So it's very discouraging when you think about it. Yeah. yeah. I have to agree. Okay. Well, let's talk about some possible solutions. Well, I mentioned some of them already. So the, the, the problem is that Job is righteous yet downtrodden, which does not compute. So the possible solutions, uh, his friends, their solution is that Job is actually evil. That's why he's suffering. Problem solved. Um, Job's solution is that God is the one who is wrong, who's done wrong by Job. And one of the things that's so rich about this book is it's very rare except for maybe in some corners of the Psalms for somebody to really rage, express their disappointment with God so honestly. And it, and it gives us, I mean, it doesn't have to have a utility, but it gives us permission to be disappointed with God out loud in a way that, uh, that can be often suppressed in uh, religious circles. Mm-hmm. Um. Those are the main solutions suggested in the in the text itself. Now, what are some modern solutions that we might bring to the table as we read this book? Do you want to want to say yeah, anything? Sure. Well, it's it's one of my favorite topics: the idea of God's sovereignty, God being in control. I mean, however you want to define it, right? <laughs> If you have this high view of God, where God created everything out of nothing, he knows what's happening, he knows what's going to happen, he he knows how things are going to end, more or less, well, how is is he not responsible? How is God not responsible for everything that goes on? 
that's the question, right? And I think in modern theology, I think we have process theology and open theism as two attempts to try to kind of get God off the hook. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. They're trying to get God off the hook. Well, I mean, God's not really responsible. I mean, he's, he doesn't even know the future. He's, he's the master chess player, if you will. But I mean, he's still trying to figure out what your next move is going to be. And depending on what that is, he'll come up with a counter move. And the future is not settled. I mean, we don't know what's going on. Um, with process theology, it's like, well, look, we're on this, we're all, we're, we're all in this together, even God. God himself is suffering and he's confused and he's hurting and, and he's afraid and God doesn't even know how it's going to end. Maybe it will end well, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's a little bit of a caricature. <laughs> but essentially that's what's going on. And what is interesting here is that Job and his friends, they all have a very high view of God. They believe that he's the creator, he's in control, and he knows what's going on. And yeah, God can do it. But why doesn't he do it? Or will he do it? So yeah, it's, uh, it's really fascinating to, to think about everything that goes on and what is God's responsibility? Is there a shared responsibility? Is it God's fault, at least indirectly? And, yeah, the book. Go ahead. And some people say yes, yes, it is. At least indirectly, it is God's fault. Absolutely. Yeah, the book of Job will not let God off the hook. There's no, there's no sense of. There's no sense of God can't help it. Anywhere here, like there's there's no hint of that in the book in any in any corner of the book that God can't help it. In all the layers and every section of the book, there's no sense that there's some other force at work that's forcing God's hand here. Um, the, the, there's a much higher, there's a much higher uh, concept of, there's a much more rigid concept of sovereignty in the book of Job than, than sort of modern theologies are willing to use uh, in order to sort of let God off the hook, as you say. Yeah, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. This is what Job is saying. It's it's God directly uh, who's responsible, even if anything else is used as a means. Okay, so it's either so possible solutions. It's Job's fault because he's evil. It's God's fault because God's not doing what God is supposed to do. That's Job's solution. Modern solutions maybe involve saying God is not really the one who's responsible. Well, Job doesn't believe that. Neither do his friends. Um. So one, one other way to soften retribution. So so if if it's if it's gonna be if God's gonna be righteous and Job is gonna be righteous, there's only one thing left, and that's for retribution to soften, for the ancient wisdom to be to be incorrect in some sense. So the first attempt is to try to say, well, maybe we can just soften retribution. Maybe we can have a retribution 2.0. Mm -hmm. so this can work all right so one way to have a retribution 2.0 is to say yes retribution is true that except for that the just desserts are going to be delayed 
until the next life or until a next life. The righteous get heaven, the wicked get hell. Whatever happens before people die, we, yeah, it doesn't look good, but, um, but in the end, righteous go to heaven and the wicked go to hell. So, okay, well, the book of Job is a, is a really interesting place in the Bible because it's very this worldly. There's no real afterlife to speak of in the book of Job. There's no hope in an afterlife that's appealed to. There's only hope in the sort of the peace that comes from being dead and no longer vulnerable to God's judgment. <laughs> that's the kind of afterlife that Job is interested in is one where he's no longer suffering, where he can literally rest in peace. That's about as good as it gets for him. Uh, so, so in the book of Job, nobody is interested in or talking about God making it right beyond the grave. That's just not on the table as a way to soften retribution. Retribution, but half, but beyond the grave. That's not really on the table in the book of Job. Any thoughts about that? No, I think that's some good analysis. I know there's this one verse that people use in Job. <laughs> the one where he says, I know that my redeemer lives, right? And that at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Yeah, so people use that to claim that, you know, Joe believed in the resurrection and that he was looking forward to the resurrection and so forth. I mean, I suppose that could be the case. But I mean, I've read scholarly treatments saying that it was mostly Christians just kind of adding things here and there to make it a better read for Christians. So who knows? But but I agree with you that in at the time of Job, in Israel, they did not really have a settled conviction that it, it was going to happen in the afterlife, that there was going to be an afterlife. And their, their belief was that their, their, their life was it. That was the case also with the patriarchs. This is the life where God is going to be faithful and help us or not. Yeah, and I guess we should point everyone back to our episodes 9, 10, 11, 12, where we read this book called This Life. We talked about the philosophy and theology of, of this being your only life. What if that's the case? What does it mean? And the book of Job is a place where that's what the that's what the assumption more or less is. I think that the the hints of the resurrection in the book of Job are, are really grasping, grasping for straws because mm -hmm. um, the, the whole bulk of it is, is the, is the idea that, well, yeah. If you look at what Job is complaining about, he he's aware of this idea of, of, uh, of delayed retribution, but he does, but he hates it. He's, he's angry that the wicked are prospering and he's angry that he, the righteous is suffering. He's upset about the delay. So he's not comforted by a sort of a delayed retribution principle. Um, he wants the good old immediate retribution principle. <laughs> That's what he's aiming for. But I, I think it's interesting because in Christian theology, we take the afterlife for granted as a, almost as an axiom. But where does this hope for an afterlife come from? And 
if it comes from a, an, an attempt to rehabilitate retribution, then that's a poor foundation for it. So if we're going to believe in an afterlife as Christians, I would hope that we would find a way to do it that does not involve rehabilitating retribution. That rehabilitated retribution is the foundation for our hope in a, in a life to come. If that's the case, and, our, and if, if it is the case, as I want to claim, that the gospel abolishes retribution, period, then we're really on flimsy ground uh, for our hope in an afterlife. We can do better than that if we can mm -hmm. at all. So, Okay, any next thing then? Um, so the, the other way to soften retribution, to get to a retribution 2.0, is to say that, well, maybe the just desserts don't accrue to the person who earned them. Hmm. Maybe retribution is collective. So a community earns judgment or, or blessing rather than an individual. Uh, so that, that's one way to do it, is to change retribution to a collective retribution. Another way is to sort of combine it with the delayed retribution concept and say, well, the children of the righteous man will prosper or the children of the wicked man will suffer. To push retribution, uh, to delay it over generations, so not into the afterlife, but but to the next generation. And mm -hmm. given the fact that you know actions have consequences and so on, it sometimes seems like these forms of retribution are true <laughs> because work done by parents influences their children for better or for worse. Work done in a community influences that community for better and for worse. Does that count as evidence for a softened um, retribution principle? Uh, no, I think it's a correlation rather than a causation situation. Like it's it may seem to be the case, but but I'm interested in abolishing retribution completely, and I'm not interested in a revised version of retribution. Um, even if we cling to this, actions have consequences fact <laughs> which they just do so and job in his own speeches like you can find evidence that he is rejecting the idea of community retribution or he's a, rejecting the idea of of retribution upon the descendants he's not interested in that he wants the person who does right and the person who does wrong to see for themselves the dessert uh, that comes from that mm-hmm Okay, so let's we let's talk about the Lord's speeches now. All right, let's do that. So, having set that stage, um, let's. How can I put this? We have Job finally gets his day in court, so to speak. That eventually the Lord actually shows up in this in this text and speaks to Job, and they have a di and they have a, a, a dialogue. Uh, and that, and how we interpret that dialogue, it can be very difficult to interpret. Um, it can be difficult to interpret. So maybe, uh, do you want to share any of the interpretations that you've been reading in some commentaries recently or, or should I? 
go first. Yeah, I mean, by and large, maybe my commentaries are very critical, could be. Uh, most people don't like God's response here. <laughs> <laughs> they, they feel like God is bullying Job. Like, okay, God, I get it. Yes, you're very powerful. Yes, you're the creator. Yes, I'm a puny, tiny human being. I'm not that smart, probably, compared to you. Okay, I submit. Fine. <laughs> so that's basically what they see happening uh, with this dialogue. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I'm not a big fan. I'm just going to say I'm not a big fan. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm not a big fan, and I just, uh, yeah. I, I do like this. I will say this. Let me say this. I, I do like Job's ultimate response. So I, I'm going to read here from Job 42, verse 1. It says, Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I like that. And then he says, who is this? The heights counsel without knowledge. He's quoting God. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I which I did not know. And then he says that my eyes now see you. Uh, I don't like this too much, but anyways, he says, I despise myself and, re and repent in dust and ashes. What I do like is the fact that Job didn't lose his faith. That's what I like. He didn't lose his faith altogether. He didn't lose his faith in God's providence. I think that's amazing. In spite of all the complaining and grumbling and so forth. He doesn't lose his faith in God's providence. And it seems like he, he doesn't get an answer. He doesn't get an answer in the book. And so ultimately, he seems to just accept that his question has no answer, right? He's just going to have to live with the mystery. Typically, I'm not a, a big fan of mystery answers, but uh, I do like it here. <laughs> what do you think? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, thinking of maybe just reading a section of an essay I wrote on this. Okay. Hopefully it sounds like my own voice rather than I'm reading, but... Yeah, so I because I find that like I find that there's a lot of things that get attributed to the speech that I don't like. So I don't like the idea of God putting Job in his place, of of God forcing a mystery down Job's throat, um, of God forcing Job to think that he should stop complaining. Um, and here's why: because as I as I read the book, the way I've come to read it is that it's Job, God or the ancient wisdom. One of these three things is going to be in the wrong. And I, I, t I interpret the Lord's speech as showing that the ancient wisdom is in the wrong. And so for me, it's a fitting conclusion to this, this argument that we've been having because um, it, it puts the ancient wisdom in its place. And so when I see people interpret that speech using the ancient wisdom, I see it as missing the point. If you read the Lord's speeches and you think, aha, might makes right. I knew it all along. <laughs> then, then like that's the whole point of the speeches is now to say that no, might doesn't make right. So, so that's a shame. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe so. Maybe I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll read a few paragraphs here if that's okay. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. The Lord's speeches call into question Job's standard of standards of justice, yet they also affirm Job's rejection of the might makes right principle. Um, these speeches disclose the hidden wisdom of God rather than serving as examples of divine intimidation. Job worships in response to this revelation of divine wisdom rather than a demonstration of raw power. These speeches address the traditional principles of retribution and might makes right. So prior to the whirlwind, Job honored the Lord as the uncontested master over the Lord's oppositions. This is in uh, 26, 5 to 14. Job never presumed to fully understand God's ways. And he declared earlier, how small a whisper do we hear of him in 2614. Now, such the Lord's speeches, they're not meant to put Job in his place via a revelation of the Lord's majesty. As like Job was already in his place in, in this regard. Rather, the Lord tests the standards of the retributive justice upon which Job's bitter complaints rest. The Lord's test avoids affirming might makes right theology. This is evident in the Lord's response to Job's first answer, where Job withdraws his charges. Remember, Job says, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you in 40 verse 4? The Lord's not satisfied with this feeble reply. To end here would be to endorse might makes right thinking. Job even feared that the Lord would respond this way earlier in the book. He wrote, uh, we have Job saying, though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse in, in 920. The Lord's power must not obscure the Lord's wisdom. So the injunction is given, gird up your loins like a man. This is repeated and the divine questioning continues. Job's standards of justice are under scrutiny, not his relative power. So I'll pause here. I think this is really important. It's not God saying, I'm bigger than you. Um, it's God giving Job an opportunity to have these standards of justice. Uh, it's an exorcism even of his retribution theology. Mm. And it's only possible because the Lord doesn't let Job retreat because he's small. Mm. If that's the if that was the solution, it would be over early on. It goes on longer because that's not the case. Let me continue then. So when the Lord first speaks, we learn that Job darkens counsel by words without knowledge in 38.2. Earlier, Job had called for the dissolution of creation in chapter 3, 6 to 10. If God intends to treat the righteous and the wicked the same, that's in chapter 9, 22 to 24, um, as God does in, in Sheol, where they lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them, then Job thinks it's best if, uh, if we let Sheol engulf the whole world. Job had said in uh, chapter 3, 9, let the stars of its dawn be dark. So this is amazing here, if you think about it. Job, throughout his complaint earlier in the, in the book, is saying that it would have been better if there had been no creation. So it's not only like, I wish I hadn't been born, mm. but I wish nobody had been born. <laughs> That's pretty grumpy. Um, I can relate. <laughs> 
the but if you think about it um like think about this like you have a theology that's named retribution and then you find some evidence that it might be wrong and then you say i wish nothing had ever been created right this is what's happening in the book of job retribution is not working out as he expected and he thinks that that's a good reason to wish that nothing had been created So then I'll continue reading. The Lord exposes this outburst as naive. The Lord says, um, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, Job wasn't there, of course. Job was not present when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. 38 verse 7. How then can Job so devalue creation using standards of justice that he cannot even place at its foundation? Should Job's words without knowledge trump the joyful heavenly witness? So this is, I mean, this is remarkable that the idea that the creation is good. And in the book of Job, I, I think actually, I think the book of Job is, um, it, I prefer it to Genesis over as far as creation accounts go. Uh and it's just so it's just so cranky when you when you look at that from pers that perspective for for job to call for the undoing of creation over a retribution theology that just happens to not be part of the divine wisdom mm -hmm. yeah so i'll continue if creation remains job's complaint as the one whom god has fenced in shall also remain uh, by Job's standards of justice, God's drawn unwise and unjust boundaries for the chaos, yet the Lord claims responsibilities for those boundaries. The Lord therefore questions Job's standards. And here's the thing. Could Job do any better were he sufficiently empowered? And if you think about that, I think that what's happening in this speech here is that the Lord is actually saying to Job, like, genuine offer would you like to try to do what I do according to your own standards for wisdom? Would you like to become the God of retribution? This is what the Lord is offering to Job, if you think about it. So it's not like, oh, you're not powerful. Stop complaining. It's more like, allow me to raise you up to the point where you can implement your retribution program. Do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> Mm. you see what i mean yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's a uh, it's a uh, he's the lord is it's elevating job rather than beating him down so that i'll keep reading uh in 38 13 have you commanded the morning since your days began so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked should be shaken out of it well the answer is no job's standards for justice are justice are untested his framework is limited and localized Job's wisdom can't account for rain on a land where no one lives or a vast wilderness of creation independent of human interest and purposes. Therefore, Job ought not to confuse his untested uh, anthropocentric standards for justice with the ordinances of heaven. Hmm. The theme here continues in the second speech. The Lord asks Job, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? 40 verse 8. 
the Lord again invites Job to apply his own wisdom as if his power were no factor. Would it be best for all concerned if Job, decked with majesty and dignity, 40 verse 10, were just the chaos of the world according to his own standards of justice? And this is an amazing invitation when you think, when you think about it this way. Uh, quote, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on all who are proud and abase them. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can give victory. 40, 11 to 14. Could Job's standards of justice tame Leviathan, the king over all that are proud? 40, 134. Could Job, by his wisdom, approach behemoth with a sword? 40, 19. Take it with hooks and pierce its nose with a snare? 40, 24. Of course not. Even if his power were not lacking, Job's standards for justice are inadequate to the literally Leviathan task that the Lord faces. Yeah. So, so it's like, it's, I, I love it because it's, it's, it's very uh, elevating. The Lord is elevating Job as a friend and saying, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a reduction, it's a reduction to absurdity in a way. Like, mm-hmm. think, go ahead, be the God of retribution. Do you have any evidence that that would actually be the best, that that would make sense of how the world really works? Um not you're too small stop complaining <laughs> yeah. this, this is a really good take and a really good analysis i'm pretty sure a lot of the listeners have probably never heard this interpretation it makes sense to me and it makes me want to read the book again which i haven't read in a while so that's a plus so the verse you read it oh the verse you read at the end i think is um 42 5 to 6 it says i have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And that that just cannot be interpreted, in my opinion, as oh, I guess may, I guess might makes right after all. It's it's rather that Job has been granted this tremendous perspective, mm-hmm. where his eyes have seen. Now my eyes see you. Um, Okay, but but remember back to the beginning, we were talking about theodicy as explanation versus theodicy as knowledge of the goodness of God. And mm-hmm. Job has not been granted an explanation to make him feel better. Right? Mm-hmm. He's been granted, he's been elevated to a place where he knows the goodness of God almost directly mm. over and above uh, all of his suffering. Mm-hmm. and and that's enough for him and that's more than enough for him uh, yeah he's gone he has no explanation but he has knowledge of the goodness of god mm-hmm. god is justified sort of for job mm-hmm. you, there's no way for for god to be justified under the might makes right framework it's just intimidation uh, yeah yeah so i'm a strong advocate of of uh challenging and opposing and whenever possible overturning retribution theology and i i take the book of job as a as as a, a source for inspiration on that front um i think it comports with the with the christian good news
but I think that also it's invisible to those who are deep in the grips of retribution theology. They can't help but read the Lord's speech as a, as a wave, as a version of might makes right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you can read it both ways, depending on, you know, and that's, that's the way the book of Job works. You can read it in many different ways. Great. Again, I think that was a really good analysis and it's going to give people a different way to view the book. Maybe they'll, they'll reread it with this lens in mind. And I think that'll be great. All right, let's talk about application. What, what can we take away from this? Especially if we're reading this book as Christians, what can we take away from this book? I think that, I think, I think for me, well, what I take away from it, and this has been a theme for a few years now, is I take away from it uh, a strong source of opposition to retribution theology. And, and I, and that's, that matches with the way I interpret the gospel. So we've talked about Peter Forsyth and his atonement theology in our earlier episodes. And what he describes there is 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 also a um an atonement that is not a retribution but um but something much better and and so that's how i that's how i connect these two um i connect i connect them i connect the good news as as the defeat of retribution uh, to the defeat of retribution in the book of job mm. great I think that's it's a good way to end the episode. I mean, I love what you just said. And I think uh, we already mentioned throughout the episode various ways to connect what's going on here in Job with the gospel. But uh, hopefully people see how this episode is intimately connected to previous episodes, even from a few months ago. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.